Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast, produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide, we discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. What can the form of opera do for Black people? How can Black artists employ this musical genre to stage our complex histories? These are the kind of questions that perhaps entered into the room when Anthony, Tulani, and Christopher Davis all began writing and composing their opera, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. First premiering at the New York City Opera in 1986, the opera is described by the Met as, quote, a new staging that imagines Malcolm as an everyman whose story transcends time and space. In late 2023, the opera received a new staging at New York City's Metropolitan Opera. This comes two years after Terence Blanchard became the first Black composer to have an opera produced at the Met with his piece, Fire Shut Up In My Bones. With a lush sweeping score and visionary staging by critically acclaimed director-playwright Robert O'Hara, X provides new possibilities for Black performance and artistry, specifically within the operatic genre. Jordan and I each watched the opera's theatrical release, and on today's episode, delve into themes of time and space in this production, and briefly discuss our introduction to the world of Black opera. Hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. This is our episode back fresh off the holidays and our subsequent breaks that we both respectively had. Jordan, how was your holiday season? Holidays are good. Got to come on down to Georgia where I'm from. Um, I don't think I've mentioned that on this podcast before. I'm just kidding. And it was nice to thaw out for those of y'all who may remember both Leticia and I <laughs> pretty much live in the same area of well you're in Toronto and I'm in Rochester but for all intents and purposes we live in the same region and it is cold it is cold so it was really nice to come back to Georgia and thaw out a little bit how was your holidays my holidays was good great time with the family was able to relax a little bit get some time away from work but I'm glad to be back in Toronto, even with the snow that is falling outside of my window and my aversion to traveling in snow that I need to get over. But that's neither here nor there. We are so excited to chat about a filmed version of the Met Opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, that We both respectively had an opportunity to see before we traveled home for the holidays on the same day at different theaters. And we were texting back and forth during the intermissions via the Met's uh, live HD series, which for those of you who may not know, the Met has theatrical releases 
of their operas, but it's not like a regular film where it's going to be showing for like two or three weeks. So you kind of have to really be on top of when the Met Live HD series is going to be coming to a theater near you. But this was both of our first times having the opportunity to see an opera in this way. And let me tell you, Met, y'all have this whole like digital theater thing down because let me tell you, fantastic on so many levels, um, the way that it was edited, the way that you utilize intermissions with interviews from the creative team and the cast. And then also it was the sound and the filming I think was really great. Absolutely. I totally agree. Many people in our field of study in theater and specifically performance studies, you know, we all have had this ongoing debate about liveness and, you know, capturing and all these different mediation and and what that does to the experience of theater. But for, you know, for the, the ways that they utilize this film production, I really did feel like I was there in so many ways. I mean, I didn't feel like I was actually at the production, but it felt like I was really seeing theater. It really felt like I was um, kind of ingratiated into the space. And also just as an educational tool, like you said, the use of the interview was really great. They were done, if you didn't know, by Angela Bassett, which I was like so happy. I did not know this going into the movie. I'm not sure if it was like if that was announced anywhere on the website or anything when I booked my ticket. But I was like, oh my goodness, is that Angela? Is that Angela Bassett? Um, and so that was a, a, a wonderful surprise. And also, she's an incredible interviewer. Like, I, I want to say that because, you know, just because you're an actor doesn't mean you're going to be a great interviewer. But she was very talented at interviewing folks. And I thought that people's responses to the questions were really well thought out and gave you just more context for it, especially for someone like me, who is really new to this form of of opera. So I do want to say, Leticia, you know, we said a little bit in the episode preview about this being an introduction, but like, just kind of generally, right? What is your experience with opera? Do you have any kind of prior relationship with it? I'm gonna be honest with you, my experience is zero. And I felt that sitting in the theater. I will say though, there is an unsung hero of an opera that I think would a lot of people would not place in this category that I love. And if you know me, you know I love this. It's called Carmen, the hip opera, starring another, uh, none other than Beyonce. Sweetness flowing like a faucet, body banging, no corset. Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started. That's my jam. So I was really watching this with no sort of prior knowledge of the genre of opera, uh, having any expectations of what this would be like, I really entered into the theater ready to experience a new form and understand how blackness and the form of opera relates to one another, especially a story about Malcolm X. And I think one of the interesting questions that comes up um, specifically with with X, the opera, is around why an opera and not a musical theater piece, which, which the creators of the opera talk, talked a bit about during the interviews that were aired during intermission. How about yourself, Jordan? I don't have a ton of experience with opera, but I have seen one opera before this. I had seen one opera live in my life, and that was Blue 
which is the opera. Um, the music was done by Janine Tesori, and it was premiere at um, the Kennedy Center. I believe it was a, a commission for the Kennedy Center, and that talked about police brutality and chronicled the life of a, a victim of police brutality. And I believe also the libretto um, and direction, if I'm not mistaken, was done by Taswell Thompson. So that was kind of my only experience seeing opera live when I saw that opera um, at the Kennedy Center, not like literally earlier, I guess now it's 2024, but early in 2023. As a, as a dissertation break, I allowed myself some time to go see an opera. And I was surprised at how much I really just didn't know about the form, like sitting there and watching it. And so it was really interesting. I couldn't tell you what the kind of intricacies of what they were doing kind of dramaturgically or anything like that was because I'm not kind of familiar with the traditions of opera but it was a really fascinating learning experience and as someone who writes about musical theater it is opera adjacent (laughs) in many ways Um, and there are some people for example who would consider something like Hamilton to be an opera more than a musical. I think that the boundaries between all these different genres are incredibly thin (laughs) but yeah that's really my experience with with this. Actually X came into my purview because I know Tulani Davis mainly as a a poet and as a historian actually but was not actually familiar with her work as a librettist and so seeing that this was coming to the Met but also that it was being streamed across the world was really exciting and though we are not experts in opera I want to preface this episode by saying that you know we thought it was important for us to to kind of broaden our horizons and and look at what this particular form is doing. Absolutely. And I'll also just say, Thulani Davis, if you ever listen to Daughters of Lorraine, we would love to have you on as a guest, just because one, you have a story career as a historian, but now discovering that you um, are a librettist is amazing. I'm excited to dive in to your work more, both as a poet and a librettist as well. So I will also say preface, thank you for the preface, Jordan, because we are not experts by any means, but I would like to acknowledge Naomi Andre's book, Black Opera, History, Power, um, and Engagement. It was absolutely vital in preparing for this episode to give us a sort of skeleton of Black Opera and help us sort of situate X within a longer tradition than either of us were aware of prior to preparing for this episode and or seeing X. So I just want to sort of shout out Naomi Andre's book. And of course, it's going to be in our reading list that we offer at the end of the episode. But I just wanted to foreground that because a lot of the research that we did for this episode is directly uh, from the research that Naomi Andre completed. In Naomi Andre's book, she really cites her own experience as being a black opera lover. She cites many particular instances where she attended opera, but she focuses in at the beginning of the book on a 2012 production at the Met of Verdi's um, Otello, which I think for us English speakers is Othello. Um where there was a white South African actor who was in the starring role who wore blackface. So I will say that I, my tangential knowledge of opera, if we can even call it that, 
has often been around opera's relationship to blackface, right? And understanding that blackface, the tradition, had been in opera for a very long time. And if I'm not mistaken, in some regions of the world, is still being practiced within the, the operatic form. So she's sort of situating how it is to experience this blackface. And even though she had encountered it a lot in her own experiences of seeing a lot of operas, what does it mean when, you know, she attended this with one of her colleagues that she was working on something else with, and they started asking questions about about the tradition of blackface within opera. So I think that's an important place to start this conversation with, which is, I think, definitely a critical component of the genre of opera itself, but also thinking about how potentially X fits in or differs from this tradition and what happens when you have a black composer, a black librettist, a black book writer writing the form of opera and how that pushes the boundaries of what we know can show up about blackness in the form of opera. That was really also kind of one of the main that I um, encountered when it came to opera was the ways in which blackness was erased and invisibilized in particular ways in this form, both historically and contemporarily, whether it's, you know, the fact that not many operas produced are by black composers. I mean, we ourselves already said that the Met's first black composer to have an opera in the season only happened in 2021, which is like about two and a half years ago at this point, right? Or if there are actors who are in blackface right who are performing roles like Aida like Otello that are supposed you know should be just cast with black people right but but to get these kind of big name performers who are often white or non-white they are taking taking on those roles and and just putting them in, in black or brown face and so that was kind of what I had had that's how I had encountered this form just kind of in just being in the theater world and the musical world and and being adjacent to the world of opera. And there's often also this kind of ways that the form of music, right, the form of music that is in opera, which is this more classical style. Again, I'm not a musicologist, so I don't know the exact kind of form, but or the t- exact term to describe this, but classical style, right, that is, um, that can be, in many ways, really divorced from Black people, it didn't seem necessarily as if this was a space that was, you know, welcoming to Black folks. And so being a musical theater scholar and having adjacent research to opera, someone that constantly comes up, and especially as someone who studies Black women in music theater, someone that constantly comes up in my work and in my research is that of Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield. And Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield being this black woman who was one of the, I mean, think Beyonce, but in the 19th century. (laughs) Like she was very, very famous black woman. The reason why she was so famous is that people just could not believe that this black woman was such a talented opera singer, right? That she was so classically trained and that she was performing this music that folks could not, that folks just couldn't understand, right? And so a lot of sound scholars um, write about the relationship between race and sound, right? So if you look at someone's work by someone like Nina Eidstein, for example, who discusses how this idea of what a Black voice should sound like, right, comes from this perception of Blackness. 
you know, someone like Elizabeth Taylor Greenfeld is an incredible study of that. I believe Jennifer Lynn Stover writes about Elizabeth Taylor Greenfeld in her book, The Sonic Color Line, right? Where she talks about how white audiences received Taylor Greenfeld or didn't receive her. Even going further into history, someone like Marian Anderson. Marian Anderson, like continuing into the 20th, mid 20th century, right? Marian Anderson making history as the first black woman to perform at Carnegie Hall as this opera singer, right? Again, this idea that these spaces are not constructed to welcome in black people, but this incredible, you know, operatic, classically trained voice, you know, is one that we we know very well. And then I also kind of my experience in, in thinking about opera um, and the relationship to, to Black musical genres, too, is something like the Fist Jubilee Singers, right? And the ways that they were transposing the, you know, their scores, which were made up of, of Negro spirituals, for example, and kind of transferring them into this classical operatic sound, right, is what made the Fist Jubilee Singers and other Jubilee Singers that came out of other places outside of Fisk University really popular and paid for, you know, many ventures that the university had because of their popularity, um, both nationally and internationally. But, you know, then you have someone like Zora Neale Hurston, right, who's very critical of the fact that Negro spirituals being transposed into this classical operatic sound is not staying true to where black music comes from. So there's this, you know, this really interesting relationship, right, between the classical genre that is often used as a way to gatekeep black people from entering into these spaces. But then at the same time, there is, as is pointed out in in Naomi Andre's book, that there is this long history of black people being here, right? So that's what I, that was kind of also, rumin, you know, running through my mind as I was watching X. Right, definitely. And, I, and, and to your point, and to Andre's point, is that the story of Black people in opera is often one that is told and begins with the history of singers and, the, and Black people's access to singing within the form of the opera. And there is limited but ongoing scholarship to really highlight and recover and nurture the work of Black opera composers and creators and directors and thinking about how Black folks are in a lot of different roles in the operatic genre, right? And and to really sort of think about Black folks' engagement with opera beyond singing. And that's not to sort of discount the history that you recounted for us, because I think it's critically important. And Andre even notes that Black singers did not enter the form of opera from the outside looking in as a form of like skill, but as oddities, right? So like people went to go see them or allowed them in because they were like, oh, these Black people singing this classical music form? Interesting, right? And what they actually end up doing is unearthing and usurping some of the expectations of what Black people could sound like. And then within themselves ingratiating themselves in this genre where they were not welcomed and or thought to have anything to say or do with. So I think that's it's critically important that history you laid out for us. And also to say that I am so excited to have the opportunity to talk and chat with you and to have seen X, the life and times of Malcolm X, because I think it really does focus on Black opera composers, writers, librettists that I was unfamiliar with and I think that we can focus more on and and just, you know, to 
use this opportunity to note that while we will be focusing specifically on this particular opera, there are a list of other Black composers and creators of opera that are, are working and have worked for a long time. And Andre gives us a list of these folks that we are also going to mention some at the end of the episode. And then lastly, what I'll say is what Andre identified for me as someone who is newly entering Black opera is that there's actually quite a few operas that are documenting key stories from African-American history and people, which I thought was very, very interesting because my inclination when hearing about X and that their opera in Malcolm X was like, interesting, but it seems to be a critical point to tell these sort of epic stories about Black historical figures that I was just totally unaware of. And in, in her list, you have folks talking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar as an opera or Harriet Tubman. So I think it, I, I was really interested in what seems like to me a correlation with the opera being a place where you can tell these epic stories about Black people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the the sweeping and expansive nature of the form is it gives way to telling these epic tales, epic histories and and something big and grand. And because the way that the opera is structured, at least just from my very limited experience, my sample size is two. Some of the librettists and composers I work with as a musical theater dramaturg are transferring into the opera genre. And so I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of them about the particular ways that the libretto works in opera. And, you know, if you notice this, right, Leticia, when we were watching this, but there's a kind of truncated way that the libretto enters into the space, right? Usually in opera is that it, the focus is on the score, like the music is the centerpiece. And I wouldn't say that isn't necessarily untrue in musical theater, but there is a way that it's even more emphasized in, in opera, right? And so I thought it was really interesting that X, in my opinion, actually used a lot more libretto than I expected. And even when I saw the other opera I mentioned earlier, Blue, is that it seemed like Tulani's words as the librettist got a little bit more focus in this opera than than normally a libretto might get in this in this particular genre. So I thought that was a, a really fascinating way of kind of bucking against that genre. And so I think we now kind of can transition to just talking about the production. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a great transition point. And I, I would also like to say to add a bit more context is when we when we're sort of thinking about this or like how did we how did the creation come to be right like how does someone think about putting Malcolm X to an opera and according to uh, Christopher and Anthony and Tulani who are all cousins they Christopher was in a college course about African-American autobiography and he was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X so if you see this see this production ever or you you read the opera or you listen to the music a lot of what's being pulled within the story is based off of the autobiography of Malcolm X. So like that's the sort of direct reference text. Um, and he called Anthony and to your point about music, he, when he was reading it, he was like, man, there's so many music references in this specific autobiography. And for me, it seems like it would be a happy medium to sort of think about this at that time. He was thinking about it as a musical theater piece and it was really 
Anthony Davis who came in and was like, well, what about an opera? And Tulani was like, yes, I think this story needs to be told in an, uh, in an opera because of what the form itself allows, right? So I think there's a really interesting way that we see it show up within within the opera form because while I had my own personal experience of like adjusting to the sort of different sonic pace and sound of opera itself because I wasn't familiar with it, there was still a level of comfort I felt because it was playing with all these different musical genres as well that I was also, that I was familiar with that I'm not sure finds its way into the form of opera a lot, specifically the way that the sort of public imagination of what, what opera is. So I think what you're noting and what you're pushing us to sort of think about this boundary pushing that even within X as it sits within opera is doing, it is quite interesting to me. And I think that I, or I would argue my limited argument, aka my limited research in this area, is I wonder if it is this idea of like when blackness enters the frame or black people enter these genres, that because they have been excluded oftentimes from these spaces, they're not only thinking in relationship to the form as it stands, but thinking about how can this form suits the needs of my project and how can I also pull in other forms to create different forms. And I, this just continues our conversation that we often have, Jordan, around like form and genre, um, even you mentioned with, with um, musical theater. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I found it really interesting because let me tell y'all, one of the standouts of this production was the choreography. Oh my goodness. The dancing in this production was absolutely fantastic. Key trip, I believe, did the choreography for this production and it was absolutely incredible. And again, we are not dance scholars by any means, but the the use of dance as a storytelling method, right? So the the kind of premise of the show is there's a big spaceship <laughs> that is on stage. Throughout the production, there is a this ensemble of folks who are both singing and dancing who are um, telling the story, helping to tell the story of Malcolm X. And some of them are future oriented and then some of them are also like throughout his life and from the kind of historical past and so the dancers were really primarily utilized as this kind of futuristic mechanism and I found it really fascinating how dance was utilized and I'm curious to kind of delve in deeper in many ways with the form of dance and and how it shows up in the operatic genre and I wonder if that's a kind of typical thing that happens is is dance and choreography utilized in this way I know it's a part of musical theater right as a sort of storytelling dramaturgical function but I was curious about how that entered into the frame within opera and even Anthony Davis, as the composer of this opera, did say that he was really involved in creating music for dance. And, quote, he says, that set the stage for my opera work, because with opera, you're also creating music for bodies in space, bodies in motion. Movement and drama are part of the music. And so working with this kind of embodied knowledge or making use of the embodiment of these different performers on stage was 
it informs the way he does musical process. It's informing the way that he makes this music. And you could really tell that in those scenes. Like, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Malcolm X, the story of Malcolm X, his it's his life, um, Malcolm X's life. Once he moved into this more urban environment versus the rural environment that he grew up in, you know, the way that dances of the time period were coming in. So like you had bebop and you had... You you know, folks doing these swing dances, right? Like just the way that that music and dance were intertwined in the same way that they usually are in African-American community. I was really, really interested in that part. And, you know, Anthony Davis's background as a jazz musician really, I think, comes through in the score when you look at not just the jazz music, right? But just like the kind of ways that it's an unexpected thing in the way that jazz makes form makes use of improvisation, right, is a part of what makes jazz jazz. I think that that, Im- that, that unexpected, you know, what's going to happen next idea really comes through in the way that the music played in this production. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And I, and I also was very struck by the use of dance. And it was one of the most compelling parts of the opera for me. I just kept thinking about sort of the bodies moving in space and what appeared to me as people that were inside and outside of the opera. And I say this because they were dressed in like sort of cream colored neutral clothing. So they were not, they were not identifiably connected with the, the characters of X. So like Malcolm X himself, his sister, um, his mother, street uh, elijah muhammad right and simultaneously not connected to the extraterrestrial black folks that were on stage uh kind of sort of witnessing the the opera and the story so i was really interested in their fluidity of 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 how they were able to sort of move around the space and i think this goes to o'hara's direction um as someone who was this is his first opera that he directed right but he has directed a lot of different genres and forms right he he's done straight plays he's done musical theater i think we see george c wolf's influence influence all over this right like the sort of experimental nature in which o'hara's direction i think has always sort of leaned into to trying things differently aka he's the one who's like let's put a spaceship on the shit stage right let's really connect this notion of Afrofuturism to the story of Malcolm X. And we see that with the beginning sort of opening number and opening image where the spaceships crash lands at the Met. And we hear this song about uh, Marcus Garvey and back to Africa movement. And we see all these beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous, regal, black people and I of the future black people of the future that have came from this spaceship as as they are singing and uh, the costumes by I believe it's Didi Aiti sorry if I mispronounce your name but was absolutely fascinating and if I was to imagine black people of the future that are extraterrestrials that is it and I just thought it was so interesting how this theme of Afrofuturism blended within a story that we may not associate with it and also the way that it was connected with the past, right? Like how does, how do you utilize Afrofuturism to tell the story of the past? I think that's such a compelling question and issue that O'Hara takes up in this particular opera. 
Yeah, and thinking about Malcolm X as this kind of everyman figure, right? Like, you know, Robert O'Hara talks about, you know, for example, like choosing the actor <laughs> who played um, Malcolm X and saying like, there's no reason for you to be playing Malcolm X, except there's every reason for you to be playing Malcolm X because he lives in all of us. And I think like, you know, not in this kind of like, every, you know, the simultaneous symmetrical, you know, experience, but more so the way that black people perceive time. And it's also a way that indigenous folks perceive time is that it's cyclical. It doesn't move forward. It moves in a circle. It goes around. And I thought that the the choice to have all of the characters and all of the um, extraterrestrials and also the folks from the past, right, all on stage together, blended together. Like there were points when I was looking and trying to kind of separate them. And I was like, there isn't there is no separation, right? Like everything's always happening simultaneously. It's always happening in a circle. I, I was really fascinated with Robert O'Hara's interpretation of that and how that contributes that this is not this kind of, you know, straightforward biopic, right, type of telling of Malcolm X's journey, though it certainly is, it follows a kind of chronology in, in some ways, but more so that that history is always occurring. And what we do in the past is also in the future is also in the present is also in the future. You know what I mean? Like it's just this, this spiraling rather than this kind of linear narrative. And I, I really, really love that because, you know, again, my limited experience of opera in the forefront, but you know, so much of the storytelling function of opera is this kind of linear narrative, right? What happens and from scene to scene, and there's often subtitles, like all these different things. And so what does it mean to have X come in and redo, right? In the same way, I think that someone like Malcolm X, someone who greatly impacted the way we understand blackness, right? The way we understand ourselves as black people needs a musical or an opera or something that does the same thing. I know this this is directly related to the actual book, right? Um, Malcolm X's autobiography. But also I couldn't help but think about Spike Lee's, you know, telling of Malcolm X, which I love. I, I love that movie. I know it's Three, That's why Angela was there. Exactly. I know it's three billion hours long, but it is definitely to me. It's Denzel Washington's magnum opus, which you, which is saying something because Denzel Washington is great in everything he does. And having that movie in my cultural imaginary, right? Also, I think, I think that was also something that Robert O'Hara was also contending with because there are going to be people who have only seen that movie and and I think with public figures right you have to kind of contend with yes them as people and you want to get their lives right but you also they also existed in this public space many people have different relationships to Malcolm X and his work right and so how do we tell a story that is both surprising but also familiar you know which something you said that really resonated with me was the idea of the sort of the past and the present and the future all intertwined is that we see that within the direction itself. Like you mentioned, right. There's a moment where um, 
the spaceship is used as a uh, projection site and we see the names of all the black folks skilled at the hands of violence like scrolled across like very early actually within the opera and I thought those that was a really interesting choice and I will say you know I I I buy the Afrofuturist um, inclusion within the opera and in the direction of it. I do think there was moments later on as the show sort of progresses where it sort of loses um, its connection with the piece because we, we we see less interaction with with the two things. Um, but that does not mean that by any by any means, I don't think that it should be taken out. I think it's actually quite interesting within the frame that O'Hara's O'Hara's offering us as we sort of thinking about this uh, cyclical nature that you, that you led to us. But one of the the things that O'Hara really said during one of the interviews during intermission that really struck me was this notion of cost, right? So like he said, Malcolm X, it cost him so much, right? To be this political leader, to decide to go against the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad to sort of like move in his sort of political stances in so many ways that this opera itself should cost the audience something. And when you think about the the audience for opera, the first thing come to mind, like most theater, is rich old white people. The way that this is written is confrontational in nature. Like the the music, the lyrics is I mean like this white man has to go, you know, like the some of the lyrics like I was I was like, "Oh, Christopher and Thulani and Anthony, they are they are not playing, right? The 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 story has much punch as Malcolm X had in his lifetime. And I really appreciated that intention um behind the opera and not saying we're trying to pull punches or we're trying to soften Malcolm X and who he was and what he said. Uh so I really appreciated that 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 spirit was captured within the opera itself and that they, even though this premiered um, in 86 and this was the second, uh, I believe it was the second production of this particular opera, that they were open to new interpretation and ways to sort of update it for um, a time that we have, that we currently live in. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, I think that there can be a tendency when particularly uh, politically controversial figures enter into these kind of more mainstream spaces, well, I wouldn't say opera is mainstream, <laughs> um, but enter into kind of quote unquote highbrow spaces, um, spaces that are are not necessarily seen as radical places. Um, there is a tendency sometimes for these figures, for the political resonance of what they did and who they are to be defanged, right? It becomes more apolitical or it becomes more universal, whatever that means. We know what that means. That usually means how does it appeal to sort of white, liberal, borderline conservative sensibilities. But what I thought, but to your point, Leticia, they didn't do that. I felt like Malcolm X's radical stances were maintained throughout the the piece. I don't feel that he was kind of dialed back or 
watered down in any way it didn't feel like they were trying to appeal to the opera audience is what i'm trying to say right and like you said it's confrontational um and you know one of um we've mentioned isaiah wooden on this podcast many times but in his article that he wrote about um black the black gays in in theater he talks about how learning from black artists um taught him that the point of black art is to confront and intervene. And I felt in many ways that that was happening in this piece, that there was a confrontation of this white gaze that was, because you can't argue, you cannot ignore that that is what this space, this is who this space comprises of, right? Um, So you're confronting the majority space, but you're also intervening in that space by, you know, the dramaturgical interventions, the sonic interventions, the, um, the choreographic interventions, right? And so I really appreciated the ways that they were utilizing um, their many, the many tactics, right, of, of, of embodied act, of embodied action um, in order to, to reach those dramaturgical goals. I cannot stress enough how much I enjoyed this opera, even though I think we're, it was like three hours long, I want to say, with two intermissions. It did not feel like that. Like, it did not, I wasn't sitting there being like, oh my God, when is this going to be over? Like, I really, really was invested and it felt accessible to me, someone who doesn't have a lot of experience with opera. And I didn't, because like, that was one of my main concerns. I was like, am I going to feel confused? Like, am I going to be... Am I just going to be totally fish out of water here? And I didn't feel like that at all. So if this ever comes to any opera near you or for some reason they put it back in theaters for us to watch, which you should met um, or they release it on streaming. I highly recommend that you watch this, even if you are not even if you are not familiar with opera, like it, 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 it will completely be an experience that is accessible to to anyone, I think. I a thousand percent agree with you. And likewise, I cannot recommend this opera enough. I was really, really pulled by what I seen and excited to really seek out more opportunities to see black opera. I want to see more operas. Are we in our opera era? I think we might be in our opera era Um, and really thinking about its relationship to black theater, I think is such an interesting and fruitful place for more exploration. So again, highly recommend, highly recommend. Um, And of course, as we always conclude our episodes with, we are going to give you a wonderful, wonderful reading list of um, operas that you may want to look out for and then also books and articles. So what operas do we have for them, Jordan? Yeah, um, so let's talk a little bit about um, Anthony Davis. Um, Anthony Davis has other operas, and you know we would love for you all to consume them in any way. We specifically like to recommend Amistad by Anthony Davis, and then um, Adolphus Hellstork's opera, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Common Ground, and then finally, Nkiru Okoye. Um, please charge it to my head and not my heart if I am pronouncing that incorrectly. And her opera, Harriet Tubman, When I Cross That Line to Freedom. Yes, as we should, as we should. Absolutely. 
Yes. And we've also mentioned, we didn't get into a chance to talk about her um, in this episode, but Shirley Graham Du Bois totally is an opera. She wrote the first opera as a black woman first or not probably not wrote the first one, but first one to be produced, I believe, in the United States. And so um, um, so we've mentioned her before, but I just wanted to bring her name back into this episode. Shirley Graham Du Bois. <laughs> For books and articles, we have an anthology, Blackness and Opera, that was edited by Naomi Andre, Karen M. Bryan, and Eric Saylor. Um, This was published in 2012, which then led to Naomi uh, Andre writing her book, Black Opera, History, Power, and Engagement. Please, please, please check those out. And then we have two articles from friends of the podcast that we would like to recommend, Kristen Mariah's On the Record, Sissy Aretta Jones, and Black Feminist Recording, Praxis. And then Caitlin Marshall's Ear Training for History, listening to Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield's Doubled Voice Aesthetics. So make sure you check out those books and articles as well as the operas. Go see opera, support Black people in opera. This has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. We're your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On our next episode, we interview Jonathan McCrory, Executive Artistic Director at the National Black Theater. We have so much in store for you all that you definitely will not want to miss. In the meantime, if you're looking to connect with us, please follow us on Twitter at D-O-Lorraine-Pod, P-O-D. You can also email us at daughtersoflorraine at gmail.com for further contact. Our theme music is composed by Inza Bamba. The Daughters of Lorraine podcast is supported by HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. If you're looking for the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, you'll want to search and subscribe to Daughters of Lorraine podcast. If you loved this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can also find us transcript for this episode, along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event that the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the comments.